This is episode 22 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore events podcast. We're continuing Men's Roundup 2006, Choose This Day, Who Will You Serve? This is session two with Dr. Charles Cooper. As I was uh, seated over there by uh, Mark, I asked him if... uh, if there were young guys learning to play those instruments, the mandolin, uh, the banjo, young guys 20 years old, because um, that's a very powerful art form, and it'd be a shame to lose that. Um, n- not to have guys who could just readily pick up a mandolin, which tremendous instrument to play. I hope you are learning to play that. I must say that as uh, they were producing that great sound, I I just kind of wondered how they could do that without the drums. Um, (laughs) Seems like to me, as as good as it is, it'd be so much better with the drums, but... (laughs) I really want you to know that I am profoundly appreciative you who are acting like you're cold. <laughs> Makes me feel better. <laughs> I am cold. <laughs> I didn't want to I didn't want to seem like a sissy, so but I noticed some of you are shivering, and so that's, that's good, that's good. <laughs> Won't you know that I really love being here? Wonderful opportunity, but I'm going home on Monday. It's uh, 90 degrees in Orlando today in sunshine. What a wonderful world. What a wonderful world. Father, take what is ours today and make it yours, bless and enable, inspire and lift and encourage for your glory. Through your son Jesus, amen. In his men's seminar, David Simmons, a former former cornerback for the Dallas Cowboys, relates a story about his childhood and growing up in his house. His father, a military man, was, was extremely demanding, rarely saying a kind word and always pushing him with harsh criticism to do better. The father had decided that he would never permit his son to feel any possible satisfaction from his accomplishments, reminding him continually that there was always new goals ahead. When Dave was a little boy, his his daddy one day bought him a a new bicycle, brought it home and, and gave it to him and told him to go and put it together. The boy struggled hour upon hour trying to figure out how to put this bicycle together. Struggled to the point of being reduced to tears. 
only to have his father come in, see the mess, and to retort, I knew you couldn't do it. And then, of course, proceeded to assemble the bicycle. He tells the story that as he played football in high school, his father was unrelenting in his criticism. In his backyard of his home, after every game, his dad would go over every play and point out the things that Dave erred in doing. Dave says most boys get butterflies before they play the game. But my butterflies came after the game. I would rather have played any opponent than to have to suffer the stress of my father's criticisms after the game. By the time Simmons entered college, Dave reports that he had grown to the point that he literally hated his father. And in fact, chose a college of the ones that offered him a scholarship the farthest from his home, to which he played and rather successfully graduated and then, of course, was taken in the second round of the draft pick by the St. Louis Cardinals. It was in that year that Joe Namath, who later signed with the New York Jets, was the club's first round pick. With the great excitement and glee, he reports that he called his father to tell him the good news. His father's retort was, how does it feel to be second? Some dads just never get it. I'm willing to bet everything that I have that old man Simmons believed that he was probably the greatest teacher alive. He probably would not be convinced by any amount of argumentation that his method made a great man of his son, Dave Simmons. Yet in reality, I bet you anything that Dave would tell you that his father was an unconscious educator. He taught more in the arena of the unconscious than he ever taught through his vocal criticisms. The most critical lessons that old man Simmons taught his boy were no doubt taught at the level of the unconscious. Today I want to talk about the Malachi condition and the fact that if you're not making a conscious effort, then most of what you are communicating is emanating from the arena of the subconscious. You're not even aware of just how much you are teaching. There are basically three ways to teach the traditions, the values, the faith, the hope, the goals of our lives. And the first one that I want to talk about this morning 
is that which is taught at an unconscious level, a passive level. When I was in seminary, Haddon Robinson was famous for helping us to understand that when you stand before any audience, you need to understand that only one-fourth your words have value. That by and large, three-fourths of everything that's going to happen is going to happen at the body language level. Your facial expression, your body language, how you say what you say always has far more weight and value than what you say. I would dare say, gentlemen, that as fathers to young boys, you are communicating much more loudly by what you don't say, but evidence in your body language and conduct than you ever accomplish by your words. There is a disconnect between the words and our actions. The unconscious passive level, I dare say, uh, perhaps is doing more harm than you can conceive in your mind. The road to the Malachi condition, the abandonment of the traditions of the fathers, and with it the judgment and ultimately the death and the destruction, is a road that is very minor in its initial slope. It doesn't start off going over the cliff. Now, this is a slide with an ever so slight devaluation that over time what started as an inch results in a mile. Understand men, all adults are teachers. All of us. Fact of the matter though, we most most of us have only a few students. But you are a teacher. Naturally, your greatest teaching is done in the arena of your home. Not a single day of your existence in your home with your children and your wife are you not engaging in pedagogy, in teaching. And one of the major ways, if not the single most significant way that we fathers teach our children is in the unconscious, passive level. I remember reading in Adam's book as he was explaining or doing an analysis of Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 when it explains that as Eve took the bait and ate the fruit a little curious phrase and her husband with her where he goes on to argue that all during the discussion between Eve and the serpent Adam was standing right there most of us thought he was off on a meeting and came home 
But there is a real possibility and a good argument can be made that Adam was probably standing right there and did not say a word. The passive observer, the unconscious educator. Men, we by nature, if we don't watch it, will allow most of life to simply happen. It just happens. We don't do much, say much, influence much. We just let it happen. We allow an awful lot of life to simply happen. This morning I want you to wrestle with whether or not you are in fact a conscious a self-conscious, unconscious educator. What is the father teaching his children? What have your children really learned from you? I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 24. This is where we're going to work this morning. Genesis 24, of course, gives us the brief history of Abraham's son, Isaac. Isaac, the promised child, the love child of the old man and his wife. Genesis chapter 24, let's read at verse 1. Now, Abraham was old, advanced in age. The Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh. I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Then Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there! Exclamation point. The Lord of heaven took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth. And who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you. You will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this my oath. Only do not take my boy back there. I find it really interesting in this text as it narrates Abraham's conversation with this unknown servant. That Abraham says in the course, number one, this servant who had charge of all he had. And this would give you the indication that perhaps Isaac, somewhere, is a young boy, maybe eight or nine years old. And the father recognizing that his boy, being eight or nine, is telling his keeper, now listen, this is what I want you to do for my boy. 
you would get that impression if you had no more information than what is given. He tells this servant, who is unnamed, you will, have, you will take a wife for my son. Go get him a wife. Bring her to him. And under no circumstances will you take my boy back there. My obvious question, gentlemen, is who's he talking about? Who's he talking about? He's talking about Isaac. You gotta get the impression where is Isaac? What's, what's wrong with Isaac? Why are you having to tell his unnamed servant what to do for your boy? What's wrong with him? In fact, if you notice, in Genesis chapter 25, verse 19, Genesis 25, 19, it says, Now these are the records of the generation of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel of Aramea of Paden Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. That boy's 40 years old. <laughs> wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Back up. Why are you telling a servant to go get a 40-year-old boy a wife? He can't go get his own wife. Or at least you would have thought that he would have been standing there, you know, okay, Dad, uh, what's the deal? Well, I'm going to send this guy down and get your wife. Um, let me leave the details up to you. You tell him what you want. What, what, is she, what do you want her to look like? How young, how vivacious, how tender? How firm do you want this girl to be? <laughs> now, obviously we're reading a record and they're limited on paper and we don't get a lot of the details. Maybe they had this conversation, but as I studied Isaac, I, I'm almost 100% sure that he did not do that. That boy has got, he's ADHD. He's got to be, or he's, he's mentally not up there yet. <laughs> got to be something wrong with Isaac. But, because the more you study his life, the more you begin to get a grasp of why perhaps it was done in the way that it was done. Maybe Isaac was mentally challenged and unable to understand all the sequences of life. As a matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 25, verse 21, you notice in your Bible, it says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Okay? You wouldn't know that, look at that, he's praying for his wife, one after children. If you crunch the numbers, you will discover that Isaac lived to be 180 years old. His father, Jacob, lived to be 147. 
It says, in fact, that his brother Esau also got married at age 40. Notice in verse 26, in chapter uh, 25, verse uh, 26, chapter 34. When Isaac, when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Bari, the Hittite, and Basimoth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. So both Isaac and Esau, two twin brothers, uh, got married at the same time, 40 years of age. Now, Dad, most of your boys are not going to wait that long. Most of you want him to get out faster. He seems to be traveling a little slow. But in reality, Abraham, 100 years old when, he's born, when Isaac is born, had the privilege of having his father with him for 75 years. Abraham will die 175. Isaac was, Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. He had the influence of his father for 75 years. Yet at 40, he gets married, which means that he has 35 years to be married to Rebekah when his father Abraham is still around. And then Isaac is going to have the privilege of having grandpa, pa, and son, three generations, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now the key is going to be what is the influence and what is the teaching pattern of this house? How are the traditions being transferred? How is Abraham ensuring that Isaac learned what he knows so that Isaac can communicate it to Jacob, which he has three generations before he dies? This is critical. To ensure that this great program goes on. Now listen, gentlemen. You are seated in this room because of the promise that God made to Abraham. Look at how profound this tradition is. I'll bless you, and out of you will come many nations, and out of you will come a king who will ultimately rule the world. Jesus Christ is out of Abraham, and Jesus Christ out of Abraham means that you out of Christ means that you are directly connected to the 26th chapter of Genesis. There's a lot riding on this. So gentlemen, don't, don't think now that this is not important. So we want to see now what's going on in this house. Isaac, got Esau and Jacob, both married at the age of 40. Then all of a sudden you discover in Genesis chapter 25, verse 26. Notice. Afterwards, his brother came forth with his, uh, it says, after his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Isaac was 60. How old was he when he got married? 40. It's been 20 years. Brother Isaac, what you been doing for 20 years, bro? 
When you were the girl couldn't have any children, what, what have you been doing? Have you been uh, applying the process? If you understand what I mean. I don't know about Isaac. I'm, I'm having my trouble with the boy. And particularly as I watched the family of Isaac evolve, Esau and Jacob. Esau sold his birthright. Now you talk about dysfunctional family? We, we're going to see one now. I mean, this bunch had my salvation in their hands. Esau sold his birthright. Now, in our culture today, we don't really appreciate this idea of a birthright. But in that day, it meant two to one for the firstborn son. Now, if you do, if you do a little study on what the assets were of Abraham that he would ultimately transfer to Isaac, with the land that he now has taken possession of and the sheep and the cattle and all that he has by today's dollars. In terms of today's dollars, Isaac is sitting on an estate value somewhere between 10 and 15 million dollars. And Esau comes in one day and he's hungry and he wants to eat and he has no concept or appreciation, and he sells his birthright for a bowl of soup. Now what this meant was that the oldest son had a right to two parts of what his daddy owned. There was only two boys, which meant that if his father had an estate worth $15 million, the oldest boy got $10 million and the second boy got $5 million. He paid $5 million for a bowl of red soup. <laughs> There's something wrong with that boy. <laughs> Daddy hadn't, he hadn't done too good on teaching this boy to appreciate money and value. He could have bought a whole bunch of red stew. Boy didn't have any sense of negotiation. Now listen, I can't give you the birthright. Listen, you know I can't do that. But I'll tell you what I'll do. When I get it, I'll be nice to you. You're only going to get five million, I'm going to get ten million. You know, that bowl of soup may be worth, you know, a hundred thousand. I'm hungry right now and I don't have any. You have some. When I get my 10 million, you only got 5 million, I'll give you an extra 100,000. How about that? For the bowl of soup. Listen, power of negotiation, boys. <laughs> Listen to that Esau. Oh, man, I'm so hungry. What good is a birthright? I'm so hungry. <laughs> That's today, buddy. And this boy's not thinking too clear. Not only did he lose the birthright, he lost the blessing. What's the blessing? The blessing is God's guarantee of your future. When the old man gets ready to die, he calls the boys in and says, Hey, listen, God told me he's going to do this for you and he's going to do this for you. And what he's going to do for you is better than what he's going to do for this boy. And it's a guarantee. He's out running around after wild meat. 
messing around out there in the woods enjoying nature. Jacob's at home stealing his blessing. He come in and says, what you got for me? Nothing. <laughs> You're going to be a servant the rest of your life. That's a messed up bunch. The reason the family is so dysfunctional, men, is because Isaac, he allowed life to dis, just happen. He, he just, it just happened. Look in, look in Genesis chapter 24, verse 63. Genesis 24, 63. It says, Isaac went out to meditate in the field towards evening. When I, when I read that, that just, it just struck me that some, Isaac went out to meditate. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that kind of sweet? Isaac went out to meditate. How sweet. The more I looked at that, and I kept looking at the Hebrew, I'm saying, wait a minute. He's a grown man. He's 40 years old. He don't have a wife. Some other guy's going off somewhere to see if he can find him one. He's off meditating at evening. Meditating about what? I get the idea that Isaac is kind of locked away in his own mind. He's in his own world. He's not communicating. He's Meditating. I'll tell you, there's a lot of men. That's what we meditate. We meditate all the way from the porcelain all the way in to the bed. Meditating. About what? I don't know. Just meditate. All of life is happening all around this boy. What's he doing? Meditating. Esau been robbed by Jacob not once but twice. Jacob, Isaac has lied, denied his life. And as you read the account of the biblical story in Genesis, and all of this stealing and robbing and misusing and abusing one another in the family, and Rebecca cheating and manipulating, not once, not once, not once. Not once in the story do you see Isaac saying, wait, 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 wait. Time for family council. You boys come in and sit down. Now listen, Jacob, I understand you got will of God on your life, son. You can't go through life robbing and cheating and scheming people. It doesn't pay. Because one of these days, son, you're going to meet a schemer bigger than you. Because there's always someone just a little better at stealing and robbing and cheating and lying than you are. And some of these days, you're going to get your come up and son, listen, don't treat your brother like that. Couldn't, can't you hear him saying that one day? You, you can't be robbing and cheating and abusing your brother like that and expect to get away with it in life. Not once do you have that. See, Saul, I know you don't like showering and shaving and you're kind of out there in nature, son, but... 
One day you're going to own it all, son. You got two parts of all everything I got. You're going to have to learn how to handle that. That's an awful lot to be trusted to you, son, but I'm willing to give it to you. But listen, we need to take some lessons about how to manage the resources that life will bring your way. You don't want it to manage you. You want to manage it, and you do not want to get lost in the material assets of life. So listen, let's have some lessons, son. Listen, why, why do you not see that? Seems like to me with all that's going on and with all that he knows is going to happen that Isaac would have understood the absolute necessity of helping those boys handle this divine prerogative that God has placed on their lives. But you do not see it. Isaac is locked away in his own mind meditating. Don't you know, gentlemen, that for all of us as men have this tendency. We can see what's happening. We, we, can, we can understand the implications, having seen it more than once in more than one life. And yet we do absolutely nothing. What kind of father is that? It's a passive dad. He allows life to just happen. He expects his children to get it by, one, reading his mind. I'm going to tell you something, Dad. There are a lot of young men in this room, a lot of boys, that have an awful lot of frustration in their lives. Your sons. And the number one reason that they're so frustrated is because you expect them to know everything by reading your mind. You never say anything until the volcano explodes. But other than that, you never talk to them. How do you expect them to know the values, the traditions, and what is really important if you never tell them? They cannot read your mind. Yet oftentimes it's as if we expect them to. Or we expect them to get it by osmosis. Just sit there, boy. I'm going to send it vocally, but most importantly, I'm going to send it mentally across the channel of my mind to yours. We're going to involve in a mind mill there, son. And I'm going to dump everything I know right into you here. Come on. It's not going to happen that way. Or, we, it's, it's, yeah, it's genetics. <laughs> I transferred it to you, boy, way years ago when my wife and I was. Conceiving you, I transferred into you right then, DNA, all that I am and know. <laughs> Remember, boy, you're Jones now. You, you're an upshaw now. You're, you, you're a bucket now. Something you just ought to understand. It's intuitive. You know what Or some dads, of course, expect to transfer, hey, you got to work for it. I'm not going to make it easy for you. <laughs> You're going to have to work at it. You're going to have to pick up every piece and glean every little chip and pick up every little speck of dust that I dropped in the hope that somehow you may get what I got, boy, because I had to work for mine. No, that's not how we transfer. 
Apart from the supernatural overruling will of God, Isaac and his boys Esau and Jacob, they would have been a disaster. History would have been a whole different story if it was not for the fact that God supernaturally took this process and oversaw that out of Abraham would come Isaac and out of Isaac would become Jacob and out of Jacob would come you. If it wasn't for the sovereign hand of God, friend, we'd be in trouble. Because these men did not do well in their transfer. The will of God ensured a positive outcome. Is that what, is what it's going to take for you and your family, men? Will God have to do it in spite of you instead of at your request? Is the only way that we're going to ensure that the conservative Baptists and all that you stand for and that you believe and have held dear for the years, is it totally in the hands of a divine process instead of and not because of you're committed to make sure that everything that was yesterday will be tomorrow. It's only going to be German if you get serious. You got to get serious. This is not a game. This is not haphazard, gentlemen. This is for keeps. Every day, boys are being destroyed in this world system. Every day, they're getting lost in the ruination of all that is. Every day, sin is snatching the vitality of their possibilities and setting them on a course to destruction every single day. Not going to happen by chance, gentlemen. This thing is not by osmosis. It's not by DNA. It's not by simply a reading of the mind. It's not by a mind melt share, ladies and gentlemen. It's by living and imparting and imputing what's precious to you to your children. Hunter Thompson describes what I call the unconscious educator in great detail. Listen. Security, what does the word mean in relation to life as we know it today? For the most part, it means safety and freedom from worry. It is said to be the end that all men strive for, but is security a utopian goal or is it another word for rut? Let us visualize the secure man. And by this term, I mean a man who is settled for financial and personal security for his goal in life. In general, he is a man who has pushed ambition and initiative aside and settled down, so to speak, in a boring but safe and comfortable rut for the rest of his life. His future is but an extension of his present, and he accepts it as much as with a complacent shrug of his shoulders. His ideas and ideals are those of society in general, and he is acceptable as a respectable but average and prosaic man. Has he any self-respect or pride in himself? 
How could he? When he has risked nothing and gained nothing. What does he think when he sees his youthful dreams of adventure and accomplishments and travel and romance buried under the cloak of conformity? How does he feel when he realizes that he has barely tasted the meal of life when he sees the prison he has made for himself in a pursuit of the almighty dollar? If he thinks that this is all well and good, fine. But think of the tragedy of a man who has sacrificed his freedom on the altar of security and wishes he could turn back the hands of time. A man is to be pitied who lacked the courage to accept the challenge of freedom and depart from the cushion of security and see life as it is instead of living in it second hand. Life has, life has passed by this man and he has watched from a secure place afraid to seek anything better what has he done except to sit and wait for the tomorrow which never comes that's a passive observer to life man that's that's an unconscious educator that's a guy who thinks he is founded when in fact life just happened Turn back the pages of history and see the man, the men who shaped the destiny of this great nation that we love and hold dear. Security was never theirs, but they lived rather than existed. Where would the world be if men had, had sought security and not taken risks or gambled with their lives on the chance that if they won, life would be better and different for not only themselves, but those whom they loved? It is from the bystanders who are the vast majority, unfortunately, of men that receive the propaganda that life is not worth living, that life is a drudgery, that life is about sex and drugs and the pleasure of the flesh, of the flesh not understanding that the real life is about the challenge of making it better and ensuring that tomorrow is always better than yesterday. These are the ones who squeeze what excitement they can from life out of the imaginations and out of the experience of others through books and movies. They're gratified by it. Yet they are the insignificant and forgotten men who preach conformity because it all, it's all they know. These are the men who dream at night of what could have been, but who wake at the dawn of every day and return to the trough of the vermilion rut. To merely exist through another day. For them, the romance of life is dead and they are forced to go through the years on a treadmill cursing their existence, yet afraid to die because they don't know what the unknown will bring for them, but they're more afraid to live. Unconscious educators who refuse to march to a different drumbeat. They like the only true courage, that, that kind which enables men to face the unknown regardless of the consequences. I wonder, do you hear me? Do you hear me? As an afterthought, it seemed hardly proper to write of life without once mentioning that word happiness. So we shall let the reader answer this question for himself. Who is the happier man? He who has braved the storms of life and lived, or he who stayed securely on shore, merely existing? Which one are you?
What he is describing is the unconscious educator. Is that what you are today? Are you transferring your values, your traditions, your hopes, your dreams, your truths to your family through some process that is undefined? How will you measure whether you are doing well or not? One day a little boy was acting up and uh, you hear the father say to him, uh, what are you doing? You know better. To which the child retorts, why? Why do I know better? Why should I know better? How was I supposed to know better? When you never, never told me. Dads, there are many things we should teach our children. But if they're going to know them, it's going to be because of an overt external effort on your part and not because you are an unconscious educator. Let me give you three questions to take away this morning with you. Number one, are you leaving the hope of tomorrow to chance? Are you leaving the hope of tomorrow to chance? Are you thinking that somehow it's just all going to work out? That somehow that boy's going to figure it out? He's going to get it right somehow. It's just left to chance. Number two, are you an unconscious educator? By that I mean this, does your wife and children know that you love them or are you thinking they know it because you keep coming home? There are some things far too precious to leave the chance, gentlemen. Third, most importantly, has the Malachi condition set in at your house? Has the transfer of what is sacred and precious left you and left your house to the chance of destiny. No father sets out to be the ruination of his boys. And yet in 15 years of doing men's ministry, I have found that any time I want to reduce a bunch of men to a bunch of crying, blubbering idiots, is to start talking about them and either their sons or their fathers. Now if you want to see a mess, I mean if you really want to see a mess, there's nothing I don't think worse than a big old man crying and blubbering and snotting all over the place. <laughs> and start talking about him and his day. The overwhelming majority of, the, of them, the overwhelming majority of them have deep down inside this urgent need 
have something happen between them and dad that they cannot explain, cannot put into words, cannot describe, but if it happened, it would revolutionize their lives. You know what it is? It is the transfer of what is precious to him, to them. Don't you die and leave your son between birth and death with nowhere to go. It's unfair. Please, don't do it. Father, I pray for every man in the place today Father, as you well know, it's pretty tough living in this world today. The world has decided that it's better to have men get in touch with the feminine side. Better to have them crying and blubbering and being all soft and gooey. Somehow, Father, we are to be what we're not. We are to be shaven, clean-cut little boys. Seated in the rumper room of life, just kind of letting it float on by, meditating. And yet God in every one of us is a testosterone pulled pool of potential. I just pray, Father, that every man in this room, every boy that's going to be a man, will somehow figure out that that transfer is the key to what is good and wholesome and righteous and just. Lift us up out of the pool and the rut of security to take a chance. In Jesus' name, amen.